Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the show today, we have Michelle Box, also known as the Blonde Fixer. Before we have the chance to speak to Michelle, it's a leadership back in news. Given the environment that we're in with a global pandemic, many people are coming to terms with the fact that we may need to become more isolated. The irony is no more stark, though, when you look at statistics that lie behind loneliness and isolation. Some research completed by Campaign to End Loneliness.com has found that loneliness increases the likelihood of mortality by 26% and comparable to well-known risk factors such as obesity and has a similar influence as cigarette smoking. And their research also shows that loneliness increases the risk of high blood pressure. So how do we mitigate some of these factors and increase connectivity? Well, I look to research for those that are most isolated at this time and look to those on the International Space Station in NASA. In an article that caught my eye written by Corey Steig of CNBC's Bank It, where she was following up on a tweet by one of the International Space Station retirees. Peggy Whitson, retired astronaut, spent 655 days in the International Space Station with NASA and shares her five top tips to mitigate isolation and confinement so that this time could be useful and productive. In Peggy's tweet, she refers to these tips as behaviours, or EB, standing for expeditionary behaviours. They can be applied to any situation that involves working remotely as a group. So while we may not have a mission to space, the mission we may have would be just getting used to each other's company, new routines and having to create new routines. So here's Peggy's top tips. Communication. She says that communication is not just about using new mediums, but about being able to share information and feelings freely. That includes talking things through and admitting where there's a misstep or a mistake, as well as debriefing when something goes right. Good communicators are also effective listeners, which often means restating what somebody said to check in what has actually been said. Leadership and followership. Trust and responsibility are the hallmarks of good leadership and followership, according to NASA. Those in leadership positions should lead by example and provide the resources and solutions to tasks and goals. Team members can actively contribute to the leader's plan too. Self-care. NASA's definition of self-care is demonstrating your ability to be proactive and stay healthy. If you get enough sleep, good hygiene, spending time on non-work activities, it'll make you happy. We should consider this as we're all being drawn to connecting through social media, if that's good use of our time or not. Team care. Remember that we're all in this together. The best way to support your team is to be patient and respectful, according to NASA. Foster good friendships and relationships with your co-workers during this time. Offer help to others. Group living. The final expeditionary behaviour, or EB, is about building a group culture by taking into account everyone's different opinions, cultures, perceptions, skills, and personalities, according to NASA. NASA say, 
respect roles, responsibilities and workloads and we'll all create a harmonious group living. But be thoughtful for those that haven't got the capacity to find others. And pay attention and just notice those in our communities who may need that phone call or the letter that we've yet to pen. That's been Illusion Hacking News. If you have any news, insights or stories that you'd like to share with our listeners, please contact us through our social media sites. Today's guest is Michelle Box. She's the Chief Executive Officer at Boxbury Marketing, where she trains entrepreneurs on marketing and business development. She's a columnist and a speaker. It is the blonde fixer herself. It's Michelle Box. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So your journey to CEO is not a conventional one, is it? I was doing a little bit of prep before we spoke and met, and I found a couple of videos on YouTube, one in particular as a 15-year-old high school girl addressing a political rally. Tell us a little (laughs) bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I actually initially started out in policy and politics, and my very first campaign ever was when I was 12 years old. And then I went on to uh, interning in a presidential race here in the States. And then from there, I was given and offered this opportunity. Uh, They thought it'd be really great at this rally to hear from a student speaker. And so they asked me and I had not given a speech publicly before. And I said yes, um, not really knowing totally what I was signing up for. And then I went on to to speak at this event and ended up having 500 people at it, which is quite a lot for your first speech at 15 years old. (laughs) And uh, went on and, and gave that speech. And it it was actually kind of the catalyst to my whole um, political policy career and everything I'm doing now as an entrepreneur. So having so many experiences at such a young age in what most people would call an adult world and adult life, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from that time in your life that you now use in your adult life and your leadership career? Oh my goodness, so much. Um, you know, I learned a lot about through policy and politics, I learned a lot about communications, of course, um, but I also learned a lot about leadership, you know, speaking at that that one event of the video you found, which it's so funny that you found it. I've tried to take it down so many times, but I've lost <laughs> access to the account. Um, and uh, I found that um, through that, I ended up launching a website um, a few months later that was really a policy website um, geared at covering legislation here in the States. And I recruited a whole bunch of my fellow high school friends to help me with it. And so we would literally read legislation. We would post content every day. And so the website got 10,000 page views monthly, uh, just organically from us posting this information. And so that was really my introduction into marketing, into uh, leading a team and everything that I do now as a CEO. And it's a super experience. And of course, people get often confused with leadership has something to do with a job title or a career or a salary. But actually, what you've demonstrated is leadership is about just behaviors. And we can have leadership skills and behaviors at any age, right? It's so true. A lot of it is really just jumping in and saying, okay, you know what, I'm I'm going to do my best here. And I'm going to to figure it out. I mean, so many of us in life do figure things out as as we go along. And so it's better to not wait for that moment of coronation, if you will, and instead just jump in and say, okay, I'm going to do my best here. This is the result we're looking to achieve and nurture these people in the process. So with an early start in politics, did that turn into a full-blown career? What happened next? Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously starting out at 15, you're still in high school. So um, 
I ended up graduating early at 16 um, and continuing politics. So I was working in political campaigns. I became a um, radio media, media political commentator. So I had a weekly radio segment and uh, I was a columnist as well. So I was writing a lot of publications. Um, and so I got to work in campaigns in Nashville. I did some work in D.C., um, Kansas City, where I grew up. And so it, it was really a interesting time for me because I was pretty much doing it full time. But it was a myriad of things and all different aspects of policy, politics and media. Given that you were so busy at such a young age, any regrets, anything you might look back and think, or should have done that differently? No, actually, I'm incredibly proud of everything that I accomplished and showing that initiative so young. I think that um, that's something I'm proud of. It really did lay the foundation of everything that I do now. And, um, you know, I still had my social time with friends. I still, you know, I was still very normal in a lot of ways, but at the same time, just very driven, uh, very clear about what I wanted. And I would felt really blessed every day to have that opportunity. I mean, how many high school students can say that people actually cared at all what they had to say that young? So it was just a really cool experience for me. And of course, the more experiences we have, whatever age they are, that lays down those foundations that we can draw back on later in life. After your career in politics, you then became a really successful real estate agent. Tell us about the transition and the journey. Right. So it's it's such an unconventional um path that I took. But, you know, if you can put yourself in your shoes of a high school student who's getting quite a lot of attention at a pretty young age, um, there's definitely pressure associated with it. And I think when I turned, um, you know, 18, 19, I just realized that I needed to maybe take a step back. I think when you're 18 or 19, you don't totally know fully what you believe on the political policy realm just yet. Um, a lot of it has been kind of uh, spoon fed to you, if you will. And so I took a, a step back and, you know, especially nowadays, I think it was such a smart move because, you know, Google obviously, and, you know, all the other search engines, they, they chronicle you for forever. As you said, you found that video from when I was 15. And so, you know, if I had continued on down that path, um, you know, I may not agree with some of the positions or the stances or the things that I, I had taken. And so I chose to, to be pretty quiet for a little bit. I actually moved to a totally different city. I got my real estate license. Um, I had had a subscription to Forbes uh, since really, uh, I was probably about 15 years old. And I had always read about how so many, um, you know, CEOs and business executives and successful entrepreneurs have a real estate background. And so I went ahead and I got my real estate license. And then it was, um, an interesting experience getting your real estate license in a city where you know no one because real estate is very much a networking connections kind of industry. And so I had to build everything from the ground up and I had to figure out business really quickly when I had only been on really the policy and political end. So from there, um, year one, I think I sold only like four houses, but year two, I sold 20. And so to have that intense amount of growth uh, obviously is is considered pretty good in the industry, especially for a city that you just moved to. So I got to speak at the National Association of Realtors Conference um, that year and just to talk about everything that I had accomplished. And it was really cool because it was just another experience of realizing 
through a lot of grit and determination that you you really can succeed in any field. That's great. And what you've just described is a lot of internal drive and determination and focus. But of course, we all need that external lens. So during that period of growth and development for you, how did you seek and find other ways to grow and become more effective in yourself and more effective as a leader too? That's great. I read a lot about business models, actually. Um, So it was a lot of modeling and seeing what other successful agents and brokerages throughout the United States had done and to completely make their model my own, of course, with a few tweaks. I think if anything, that is something that has really propelled my success is just my ability to think extremely conceptually and to look at everything and say, okay, how do I break this down into a system? How do I turn this into something where, you know, is implementable for me? What are the step-by-steps that need to happen? And then from there, going on and, and actually just doing the implementation. And all the great leaders I've worked with, coached, supported, and worked with, they all have this philosophy of lifelong learning, don't they? Where they're able to just copy and paste and, and take the best bits of all of the people they've worked with and make it their own, whilst still, of course, maintaining that authenticity. And it seems to me, Michelle, that you've managed to create a unique you that's also authentic. Thank you very much. You're welcome. During that period of time, transitioning from politics into real estate, what was maybe the one thing that you learned the most? I think the realization that you can't do everything alone, that you really do need support. So you need your mentors, you need your team, you need, I think that if you have a lot of internal drive, it's very natural to think, you know what, I can figure this out on my own. I can do all of this on my own. Um, I'm independent. It's fine. Um, and then just really putting your ego to the side and saying, you know what, I don't have all the answers. Like you said, you know, copy and paste and um, really having the network around you to support you along your way up. And since leaving the world of real estate behind, you now run a firm where marketing and business development are pivotal to what you help other clients with. How did that transition come about? Well, so... The way I describe political campaigns, so what people should know is um, throughout my time in real estate, I was in real estate full time for five years. And in addition to uh, that, I was also running political campaigns. And so it's basically like having two full time jobs or or some would say that political campaigns in and of itself is, is a two is two full time jobs. And uh, so with real estate, you learn a lot about marketing. Um, obviously, you learn a lot about sell, sales and you learn a lot about um, modeling and business. But then on the flip side with political campaigns, uh, imagine it as a business um, where you basically have six months to get the entire brand off the ground, to get the entire business off the ground. And you have one day, which is election day, to make all of your sales. And if you don't make all those sales, you're out of business. And so it's an intense amount of pressure. And so I uh, really channeled all of that And to realizing all of those experiences made me really, really effective in business. And I realized that so many small business owners are really great at what they got into business to do, but they're not so great many times at the actual business end when it comes to sales, marketing, business development, pricing, you know, all of those things. And I realized with my experience, I could really help them. Um, With real estate, I felt like I had really 
I was looking more for a challenge. It started to be the same thing every single day and I needed to grow. And that's just been a hallmark of, of who I am. And so I went ahead and started my marketing firm. And initially it was just supposed to be marketing and it moved into business development as well as I realized the need of small business owners and we were generating revenue a week from starting. Well, that's a massive achievement. And so early into a new business to be driving revenue, well done you. So you've become known as the blonde fixer. Now, if anybody's ever met you, Michelle, or seen you, they'll know the blonde bit, but the fixer bit, not so much. So what's the most common things that you often find yourself fixing for others right now? Sure. So the fixer term in and of itself is actually a political term. Um, and it, a fixer basically handles crisis management for political campaigns or candidates, that kind of thing. Um, but I also shifted it over into making it about business as well. So a lot of times um, for a business, well, so we worked with uh, about 100 businesses in our first year, whether it was on a retainer basis or just one off consulting calls. And so a lot of times I would get on these calls and these uh, these businesses would. I would quickly realize would not know anything about their costs and their pricing. And so many times I find that, you know, businesses are so focused on, you know, marketing and sales and like in getting that, getting the revenue in that they don't check to make sure that they're properly structured. And if you're not properly structured in terms of your margins, then unfortunately you're going to hit a cap eventually. And if you don't have the margins built in, you're going to have a lot of difficulty in scaling your business long-term. So I a lot of times we'll, the very first thing we do is work on the pricing. So, you know, making sure they really have a real grasp of what their costs are. And then also a grasp of what their current production limit is, whether it's a product or a service, how much they can literally do right now without hiring anybody, any, anybody else. And then from there, uh, we go ahead and um, make sure those prices are correct. For example, one of my clients, um, we ended up increasing her, her pricing extremely significantly. And she said, well, no one's going to buy it at this price. And I was like, just try and you'll see. And so through that and then our marketing as well, uh, she not only was able to raise her prices, which of course increased her margins, but then she was able to actually get more sales than she was getting before. So that's basically what we do on a day-to-day basis. It's really interesting, isn't it? So what might seem obvious for most people getting that kind of basic foundations right for their business, people often get distracted when they're running their business. What do you think the main reason is for that? I think it's overwhelming for a lot of small business owners. Um, You have so many tasks that have to be done, so many hats to wear. And it's easy to let things fall to the wayside. Uh, I think that, you know, sales and marketing does seem obvious when you look at it from a big picture view, but on a micro view, many times they get focused in on on the creativity or the production of the product or the service that they're creating. And and everybody has different personality types as well. Um, so I think that that's why so many small business owners, I mean, we, we really look at how critical that is, though, because the majority of small business owners do fail within five years, which is you know one of the reasons I started the firm. So it's really... I think a lot of it is they just, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to, to get overwhelmed and it's easy to just keep procrastinating and pushing things to the side and, and hoping they'll resolve themselves. But many times they actually just get worse. And I guess just like many 
startup business owners and indeed most business owners they they arrived at being in their own businesses because they were good at something they were passionate about something they had some real desire but of course that's not enough you need people around you've got the right skill sets the right personalities that can offer you differing views and different behaviors right absolutely and also just taking a a look at again what your skill sets are kind of what you just touched on and realizing that if you want to be the person that that is creative and just focus on on the creative end, which is what many, like you said, many small business owners, that's what they start their businesses. It's a passion project. That's okay, but you have to find a way to find the right people that will be on that other side for you and will be doing the, the stuff that you may not want to do. And so that's a lot of where we come in is just filling that gap. Right. And I also wanted to explore with you that whole principle of pricing because when anybody runs their business and me included, getting the value versus fee versus right proposition is incredibly important. And I think confidence plays a part in that, doesn't it? Particularly if you're new into business. So how do you help people with their confidence about getting the right price for the right value? Ooh, I love, love this topic. Uh, I love telling the story about uh, one of my first real estate sales where I was negotiating the commission for myself. So um, I was talking to a prospective seller and they asked me what my commission was. And I so desperately wanted this listing because I was just starting out. And I think that there's that feeling of desperation that a lot of small business owners find themselves in when making a sale. And instead of dialing into that desperation, I chose self-regulation. And I took a step back, took a deep breath and said, you know what? I'm going to charge even more than I think I can get. I'm going to charge way more actually. And so I just leaned into it and said, okay, you know what? I want my commission to, to be this amount. And it ended up, ended up being about you know two to 3% more than a lot of people in my firm were getting. And he said, yes. And that was an incredible lesson for me to realize that so many of us do undervalue ourselves. And so many of us, not only we don't see our own value, uh, but we also don't realize that we are the determining factor of our value. We sell ourselves short. And so really being unapologetic and, and realizing what's the worst that can happen. You know, they, what they say no, or they need to negotiate. You can always renegotiate. And that's all it is. But to sell yourself short is doing your business a disservice and doing you a disservice. And it's going to, it feels good internally to be compensated well for your work. And I think it's incredibly important to just always say to yourself, okay, can how much more can I charge here? Just taking that beat, taking that moment. How much can I charge? Can I, I've, there's been times with uh, political consulting where I've literally doubled what I thought I could get just to see and make it a little bit of a game for yourself, just to see what people perceive your worth to be. And you'll be amazed at how little resistance you get when you confidently say it. And of course, we don't all have a different value that we place on people's services, times and expectations. But often it's our own internal dialogue that either talks us into something or talks us out of something. And actually, confidence can increase value because people feel assured. They feel certain about the services and the products that they're going to get from you, right? Of course. And I also think that we there are clients for every price point that you want to charge. If you have a dream amount that you want to charge and you feel like you can justify that value, then there are people who out there who are willing to pay that. Your job is just to find them. That's really all it is. It's really all that marketing and sales is. 
So Boxbury Marketing are now in a period of growth. So what's next for you and for Boxbury? So what we consistently found in you know year one was even though we worked with you know over a hundred businesses, that many small business owners, of course, don't have uh, massive access to to capital to pay intense monthly retainers over time, and then many of them also really needed a space uh, to learn instead of just us doing the work for them. And so we have actually, we're in the process of launching 60 different courses that cover marketing, business development, sales, pricing, just everything that you would need to know. Um, so 60 different courses for 60 different industries. And we've also teamed up with uh, other knowledge experts like business accountants and attorneys. Um, so basically, these business owners will be able to purchase something that's specific to their industry to be able to build out this business model. And then from there, um, they'll be able to watch and have these courses uh, permanently. And as we add to them, they'll get the the new additions as well. So we're progressively hiring a sales team that is going to be to be selling these courses out. And it's just really an exciting time for growth for Boxbury right now. Well, congratulations on that continued growth as well, Michelle. Thank you. For all our guests that come on the show, we're asking them to share their top leadership hacks so we can hack into your mind. What's your top leadership hacks? Absolutely. So one thing I would say is to facilitate feedback from your team. Um, I found that it's so important to check our egos at the door and to simply not be afraid to get that feedback. You'd be amazed at the wealth of knowledge that you're team, whether it's your sales team or whoever else um, has, whether they've, even if they haven't been in executive positions, many times they can fill in that missing piece of the puzzle. So many of us as executive types carry a lot in our heads and it's really important to rely on your team to see where those puzzle pieces are, where they can say, okay, look, um, actually, maybe this isn't as clear as you thought it was, or maybe we should be doing this so we can all feel a little bit more unified. And so facilitating that feedback from them and making it a two-way street has been really critical to me and my success. The next would be empathy and compassion and kindness, putting that all in as one. A good story about this is a sales member of mine on my team. She was recently experiencing um, trouble with rejection. And I guess there had been a couple of people who had rejected her who were not very kind. And um, she got all the way to the point where she was ready to quit and she never said anything to me, which is where that facilitating feedback that I already mentioned comes in. Um, But then the other thing was she had gotten so in her own head that she felt she wasn't cut out for the role. And so when she finally came to me and she told me that she was ready to, to quit, I just really instead dug in instead of accepting, you know, the instant quitting and, and just tried to, to get in with her and where she was at. And so I empathized and provided solutions to her concerns. And she has been in numerous sales positions before. And she told me that she had never had a, a leader tell her before that that they actually cared um, and to show that they actually cared. And it's, just, it's startling how many people don't feel like their leaders and the executives truly care about them. So really diving in deep with that. And taking that time to to slow down and, and really get into where they're feeling. And then we were able to find a creative solution for her to where she's still able to sell for us, but in a way that she doesn't 
hear the rejection in such an intense fashion. So just really customizing it for for your team and, and being empathetic, I think is so critical. The next would be investment in the individual. Uh, it kind of ties into that empathy aspect, but I really like to dive into um, my team's professional goals. You know, right now we have a really, really large sales team, um, over 60 people. And I dive into, you know, where do you see yourself going in life? You know, how does this job help you get there? Because I know that if they're happy and satisfied, they'll stay longer. But I also know that if they really feel like a job is is pushing them towards their best potential and really helping them elevate, then they're going to give the best results. So really just diving into them and investing in them as an individual is critical as well. They're super hacks. Thanks, Michelle, for sharing those. What's really important to recognize is from a leadership perspective, the more that you give and then get on the agenda of others, the more that you get in return from working together. So great stuff. At this part of the show also, we're going to invite our guest to share what we call the hack to attack. So this is when a situation has gone particularly wrong or knocked out well, and we now use that as a tool in our kit bag to lead and support and help others. What would be your hack to attack? So this is quite the story. Um, when I was about 17 years old, I would say, um, I tweeted something on Twitter. And this was, of course, during my time in politics and policy. And I tweeted something without really thinking about it. I thought it was tongue in cheek. And apparently people didn't feel that way. Um, The tweet ended up getting screenshotted and put on an article that was seen by 20,000 plus people. And I received um, over 100 uh, hate messages, death threats, that kind of thing overnight, which is, of course, pretty alarming when you're 17 years old or any time, frankly. And uh, what I learned from that experience um, is one to first simmer down (laughs) before you react. Um, It was a pretty alarming time. But then I just really learned the importance of our words, that our words really have power. Um, and it, it sounds trite to say, but it's so critical uh, in terms of leadership and in terms of leading our team. Words can sting for a really long time. And so for me, it was just that that reminder that, you know, to always check how something might be perceived before we choose to say it. Wow, that's a massive lesson to learn at such an early age, but one I suspect you use readily when you coach and counsel others, right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, communication's changed now where we could get away with saying it and people could hear things. They can unhear those things and maybe forget it. Whereas now with texts and social media, once we've written those words, they're there forever. Right. It just it's it's like a nice big punch, unfortunately, to to a lot of people if you don't say things the correct way. And I think that it's just a reminder as well that, you know, when we put things in text, our tone of voice and uh, a lot of the other senses that we use to typically engage with the world is is absent. All you've got is the visual. And so to really be mindful of how that's perceived. And with social media being so present in our lives, it's even more important now. So the final thing I'd like to explore with you today, Michelle, is if we were able to do some time travel, go back to meet that 15-year-old Michelle who was courageous, political activist, ready to take on the world, what advice would you be giving her now? I think that Michelle at that time was incredibly driven, but also really afraid of not getting places fast enough, not accomplishing the dreams fast enough. And so I would really advise Michelle at that time to do something called living in daytight compartments. And it's a concept that Dale Carnegie wrote about in his book about stopping worrying. And 
it's really to leave the past in the past, to leave mistakes in the past, of course, learn the lessons, but just leave them in the past. And then also to not worry about the future and where it's taking us instead to have your plan to focus every day, minute by minute, hour by hour, focusing in on the tasks that need to get done. And uh, once you have that plan in place, not leave it any time to second guess or to overanalyze, just implement, 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 and you'll get to where you want to go. That's great advice. I can resonate with that. And of course, the more that we can focus on the now being present, the more likely we'll be in control rather than stuff that hasn't happened or stuff that's chasing us. That really helps us be present and in the moment and be more focused. Absolutely. Um, and I think that it's really easy to, to not even realize how much we worry and, and how unproductive that really is for ourselves. It's unproductive for our mental well-being and then for our performance as well. And so if you really start to be conscious of how much you worry every day and how much you're analyze, overanalyzing and, and just in general getting nervous, uh, you'll start to realize there's a tremendous amount of time every day that you waste. And so alleviating that actually makes you the most. So our listeners today, Michelle, be thinking how to find out a little bit more about the work that you do. Now, you've got a strong following on social media. So how would you like our folks that are listening today to connect with you? I would love everyone to check me out on both Instagram and Twitter. It's at the blonde fixer. And I typically try to post helpful articles and just helpful tips in general, just things that we're implementing within our firm for our clients. Um, I try to give free advice every now and then as well. And if you have any feedback from this episode or have any other questions, I would love for you to reach out to me there. And as soon as folks have listened here, they can go to our show notes and click on those links direct to get to your social media pages. Perfect. So finally, just for me, I just wanted to say a massive thank you, Michelle, for being with us on the show. I know it's been a busy time for you at Boxbury, and I'm super grateful for you sharing your leadership hacks. The Blonde Fixer, thanks for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.